Uh, well, g'day. Uh, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at St. Matt's, and it's great to be with you as we look at God's Word together. Uh, if you've got a Bible open, uh, it would be very helpful for you to be able to follow along as we look at Luke uh, chapter 2 together. We live in a world that is longing for peace. There's so much division and hostility in our world, whether that's on a high level, like we see in the war in Ukraine and other conflicts around the world, or even closer to home on a national level, we see increased political polarization and, and vitriol. And even closer to home, if we're honest, we even see conflict in our families and in our personal relationships. Peace is something that all people long for, but how do we get it? What's the answer to it? Well, in our modern era, uh, many people might be tempted to think that the answer is technology. I mean, after all, we live in an age of progress. Uh, but wonderful as technology is, it hasn't given us peace. Technology gives us wonderful advances in medicine, uh, yes, but also advances in firepower that humans use to kill each other. It's a wonderful thing, but it doesn't give us peace. Well, it, that's often what we're tempted to think might give us peace in our modern era, but in more ancient times, many people thought the answer to peace was not technology, but power, human strength and might. In Luke chapter 2, verse 1, we get introduced to a guy named Caesar Augustus. Have a look in your Bibles with me. Luke 2, verse 1 says, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. Now, when Luke mentions uh, Caesar Augustus, it's easy for us to, to glaze over and not realize the significance of who, who this guy was. But when Luke first wrote his gospel for his original readers, they knew exactly how significant he was. One of the things that Caesar Augustus was known for is that he was the one who brought peace to the Roman world. Caesar Augustus brought peace, what was known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, the peace of Rome, kicking off a golden era of the Roman Empire. Before him, there'd been a great period of stability, of, of instability rather, and civil wars with Julius Caesar and Mark Antony and so on. But Caesar Augustus, or Octavian as he was previously known, Gaius Octavius, he was victorious and he restored peace, becoming the emperor of the United Roman Empire in 27 BC. There's an inscription uh, that was discovered uh, that dates from 9 BC, so uh, not long at all before the events of Luke chapter 2 where Jesus is born, just a few years beforehand. And part of that inscription reads, The most divine Caesar we should consider equal to the beginning of all things. For when everything was falling into disorder and tending towards dissolution, you know, the civil wars and whatnot, he restored it once more and gave the whole world a new aura. All the cities unanimously adopt the birthday of the divine Caesar as the new beginning of the year. Whereas the providence which has regulated our whole existence has brought our life to the climax of perfection in giving up to us the Emperor Augustus, who being sent to us and our descendants as saviour has put an end to war and has set all things in order, and whereas, having become God manifest, Caesar has fulfilled all the hopes of earlier times. Now, one thing you may have noticed from that inscription is that Caesar Augustus is not just described as, you know, a really nice guy, uh, but as divine. 
as a man who had become God, God manifest. And that's not just how others saw him, that's what he claimed for himself. Even that name Augustus, that's what it means. He was originally known as Octavian or Gaius Octavius, but when he consolidated power in 27 BC, he made the Senate confer on him the title of Augustus. And in Latin, Augustus means revered or majestic. It was the word that was used to refer to Roman deities, Roman gods like Jupiter and Mars. They were described as venerable, revered, august. And he took that title on himself. It's a big claim, isn't it? He was a proud man, a powerful man, who elevated himself even to the point of claiming to be a god. I don't know if you noticed as well that in this inscription he was called Saviour. And in other letters and inscriptions, we even see that his birth was later called Gospel, Good News. Why did they see him as divine, as saviour, as bringer of good news? Because he brought peace. He's put an end to war and has set all things in order. Caesar Augustus, the one who brought about the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So perhaps that's the answer to world peace. Human strength and military might. Maybe we just need a strong man like Caesar Augustus. Maybe we need something like that today to save the day and bring us peace. But the problem is, even though this was, the, was called the Pax Romana, the so-called Golden Age, the reality is it wasn't such a wonderful peace when you look more closely. For the Romans, uh, peace didn't mean everyone's in harmony and gets along well with each other. It meant you've crushed your enemies to the point where they can no longer resist. It was a peace reserved for the Roman elite living in elegance who lived very peacefully, while everyone else lived under the oppression of the Roman legions and crippling taxation. It was peace for the strong, but oppression for the weak. In fact, that's the whole reason for the census in Luke 2, 1 to 3. It was a census for the purposes of taxation so that they could squeeze even more out of their peaceful, impoverished subjects, out of poor and powerless people like Joseph and Mary. And the Roman peace was not only oppressive, but it was also fragile and temporary. It didn't last. So no, human, human might and strength are no real solution for our longing for peace. So what is the answer to our to, to true and lasting peace? Well, in Luke chapter 2, God is promising a far better solution to the peace we're all looking for. A solution that gives real peace, not just crushing our enemies, a peace that is for the weak, not just the strong, a peace that is lasting. And as we go through Luke 2, we'll see quite a few contrasts between the peace the world offers and the peace that God is offering. So let's have a closer look. We've seen verses 1 to 3 in the census. So let's pick up and read from verse 4, where the, the narrative narrows in on two people who are obeying that Roman decree. Luke 2, verse 4. It says, So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. 
So here we're introduced to two people who are obeying that Roman decree, Mary and Joseph. And we know from history that the Romans' censuses often adapted to local customs. And in this case, they needed to register according to their tribal heritage and ancestry, which means that Joseph and Mary had to make the long journey from Nazareth in the north of Israel to walk for a few days south down to Bethlehem, the town of David. Mary is heavily pregnant, and not long after they arrive in Bethlehem, she gives birth. And because there's no guest room available, she puts her baby in a manger. Now, it's hard for us to picture this properly, uh, because our imaginations have been so skewed by sentimental Christmas cards. Immaculately clean, soft lighting, gentle smiles, even, even halos on Mary and Joseph. Now, of course, we don't know exactly what things did look like, but we can be confident it didn't look anything like this. If you've ever seen a manger, which literally just means an animal feeding trough, you'll know that all the straw would not be immaculately clean and puffy. I mean, it looks like pillows. If you've ever been in a delivery room while a child was born, you'll know it isn't serene like this. Make no mistake, when Jesus was born, there was screaming and wailing. There was blood and mess, and there were certainly no halos. The birth of Jesus was not sentimental. It was far from anything you'd see on a Christmas card or even a modern clean delivery ward or even the august birthing chamber of the Roman elite. It was dirty, unimpressive, and lowly. A child born to a pregnant teen and a small village carpenter placed in an animal feeding trough. In the world's eyes, they were nobodies. It was nothing. And yet, as we saw two weeks ago in Luke chapter 1, this child born to Mary, in the most humble, unimpressive circumstances, was the Son of God. The Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. It was God the Creator stepping into our human experience, not in a prince's palace, in a dirty stable. What a contrast. Caesar Augustus, a man who elevated himself to be a god, compared to the true God, lowering himself to become a man. Man in pride trying to elevate himself versus God in humility lowering himself in the lowest of possible conditions. And again, we have to fight to strip away the sentimentality to actually come to grips with how crazy it would be that God would clothe himself with human weakness and what that actually means. Jesus was really human. He didn't didn't kind of float around. He didn't have a halo. He was a dirty human just like us. I love the way Christian rapper Shylin puts it. By faith we believe this amazing Jesus, who made Uranus and Venus, became a fetus. It's such a secret that few, if anybody, knew it. Months later, he's covered in amniotic fluid. The subject of the Gospels, praise of apostles, armed with eye sockets, armpits and nostrils. Who is this Jesus? God clothed in human weakness. Super sweetness and peace for the true believers. See the one who never tires knocked out sleeping. See the source of eternal joy, weeping. Which one can explain how the sun, abundant with fame, who made thunder and rain, now has hunger pains? 
Whereas we, in our pride, want to elevate ourselves. God, in humility, lowers himself. He steps into our human experience in the lowest of places. And why did he do it? He did it to save us and give us peace. Have a look in your Bibles with me where we see this in verse 8 and following. Luke 2 verse 8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, here we see the angels announcing the significance of Jesus' birth. And it's noteworthy that they announce it not to the political elite or the religious establishment, but to shepherds who once again were lowly and unimpressive in the world's eyes. And they're announcing the significance of Jesus' birth, what it means, and, and what do they say? It is good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And what makes it good? It's good news because the baby that is born is a saviour, the Messiah, the Lord. It's good news because Jesus came to save us and also to give us peace. Now, there's one thread that runs throughout this passage that helps us see that, that peace element shine through, and that thread is Bethlehem, the town of David. Don't you, if you notice there in verse 11, that the angel draws attention to the fact, not only that Jesus is born a saviour, but also specifically that it happened where? In the town of David, that is Bethlehem. Did you notice that Luke drew our attention to the same fact back in verse 4, that Joseph and Mary went to Bethlehem, the town of David? But why is that significant? Why is our attention being drawn to that fact? Well, if you're with us two weeks ago, in, in Luke 1.1, 1, 1, we saw that Luke, as a careful historian, is writing an orderly account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. That is, Jesus, uh, Luke is saying that the events of Jesus' life fulfill the Old Testament. The, the prophet Micah lived 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And in Micah chapter 5, he promised this. Uh, but you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, uh, that's the ancient name for Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. Now, Bethlehem and Judah are small and unimpressive. And yet God is promising through Micah, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, that out of them a ruler will come. And this ruler's origins are from of old, from ancient times, which in Micah's day would have been perplexing. What does that mean? 
until people saw that this was, as promised, the Son of God, the the, the all-existent one. And what will happen when this ruler, this shepherd, takes his throne? His people will live securely, and he will be our peace. That's what Micah chapter 5 promised all those years before. So so now do you see why why Luke is drawing attention to the fact that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the town of David? This is a big deal. This is fulfilling a prophecy made 700 years earlier. What seemed at the time like an accident of history, Joseph having to trek with his heavily pregnant wife three days south to obey the Roman decree, was God orchestrating things according to his plan. Caesar Augustus thought he was in control, that he could tell people what to do. But it was really God who's fulfilling his promises to his people to give them a saviour and to bring them peace. And this promise of peace is picked up and reaffirmed in Luke 2. Have a look in your Bibles with me at Luke 2 from verse 13. It says, Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favour rests. This is the answer to the peace that our world is longing for. Not human strength or might, but God lowering himself to give us Jesus. He will be our peace. But it's worth asking, how does this actually work? I mean, Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. And yet we're still dealing with conflict, whether that be wars in Ukraine, whether that be conflict in our families and relationships. Jesus was born 2,000 years ago and we're still dealing with conflict. So, So where's this promised peace? If God is really all powerful, why didn't he sweep in 2,000 years ago in Jesus, destroy conflict and chaos at the source and bring about true and lasting peace once and for all? Surely that's what we'd all want, isn't it? Well, yes and no. Because there's a problem with that scenario, isn't there? God sweeping in and destroying conflict and chaos and evil at the source. The problem is, the source of that conflict is in us. It's in our hearts. Alexander Solzhenitsyn was a Roman historian who lived through two world wars and after that suffered under the oppressive regime of the USSR. He spent eight years imprisoned in the horrific gulag camps and has seen firsthand more evil than you or I could imagine. And one of the striking things about those atrocities of these times is that for the most part, they weren't committed by heartless monsters, but by ordinary people like you and me, just in very different circumstances. One of the things he came to realise is that the source of all this conflict and evil is not out there, but within each human heart. That evil is something we're all capable of. He writes, in the Gulag Archipelago, he writes, I've come to realise that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. If only it were all so simple. If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? 
You see, that's the problem. If God simply came and destroyed every obstacle to peace, he'd have to wipe out us too, wouldn't he? I mean, he'd certainly have to wipe me out. Maybe you're a much better person than I am. But I know my heart. I know that despite my good intentions, there are also selfish motives in my heart that bring about conflict in my relationships. The line between good and evil cuts right through my heart. And so we've got a bit of a problem, don't we? We want peace. And if that was God's offering, we'll happily take him up on it. But how can that happen without us being wiped out in the process? Jesus is God's solution. Jesus was born as one of us so that he could grow up and die on the cross as one of us to take the punishment our sins deserve and conquer sin once and for all through his resurrection. The reason God lowered himself to be born as a human was to solve the problem at the source so that we can have peace with God now and to pave the way so that one day when Jesus returns again, he can bring about true world peace without having to wipe us out in the process. So when the angels declared peace on earth, they were being very serious. But the peace they were announcing was not world peace, not yet anyway, but peace with God now through Jesus' first coming and world peace later when Jesus comes again. Peace on the vertical plane now and peace on the horizontal plane later when Jesus comes again. And that is deeply good news that our world needs to hear. And in the last part of our passage, verses 15 to 21, we see people responding to this good news. And there's a lot of responses in here. Uh, Verses 15 to 16, uh, the shepherds go and see for themselves. Verse 17, they spread the word about Jesus. Verse 18, the people respond with amazement. Verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. Verse 20, the shepherds glorify and praise God. Verse 21, Mary and Joseph, they respond with obedience. They obey, they they give their child the name the angel had told them to. So if you go through it, you can see at least seven responses here in these verses. Going to see for ourselves, obeying, spreading the word, glorifying and praising God. There are so many responses, but the key thing to see here is that all these responses don't come from them obeying a list of seven commands they've been given, but rather it's the natural overflow of people who've been gripped by the fact that the news about Jesus is good. The news about Jesus, that he's saviour and Lord and bringer of peace, they've seen that that news is not only good, but life-changing. So they can't help but respond. And so that's the key thing for us today. It wouldn't make sense for me to come up here and say, here are the seven things that you need to do in response or else. No, because their responses were the natural overflow of being gripped by the good news about Jesus. And so the key question for us here this morning is, do you see the birth of Jesus as good news? Not just do you believe it to be true, 
Not just do you intellectually assent to it, but do you see it as good? This is key. The angels announce that a saviour has been born to us. But we will only see that news as good if we see our need for a saviour. If we see that the the line between good and evil cuts through our hearts too, that we need a saviour, that we need help, and that we can't do it on our own, until we feel that, the news of Jesus will not grip us. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce, which pictures what things could be like. It's a work of fiction. He's very upfront about that. But it pictures what things could be like after the final judgment, after there's been that great separation, that great divorce between heaven and hell, between those who know God and love Him and enjoy Him for eternity, and on the other, those who reject God and are eternally separated from His goodness. And he writes about a group of people who take a bus ride from hell to the gates of heaven. And there's a conversation between two men who see each other, one who's been in hell, the other in heaven, but they recognize each other from their lives back on earth. And the one from hell, who C.S. Lewis describes as a ghost because he's a shadow of his former self, the ghost is confused about why he's in hell and the other man is in heaven. And here's the conversation. The ghost says, what I'd like to understand is why you're here, you, a bloody murderer, while I've been walking in the streets down here and living in a pigsty all these years. And the other man says, oh, it is a bit hard to understand at first, but, but it's all over now. You'll be pleased about it presently. Till then, there's no need to bother about it. No need to bother about it, the ghost replies. Aren't you ashamed of yourself? Well, no, not as you mean. I do not look at myself. I've given up myself. I had to, you know, after the murder. That was what did it for me. That's how everything began when I realized I needed help. Well, personally, said the big ghost with an emphasis that contradicted the ordinary emphasis of the word personally. Personally, I thought you and I ought to be the other way around. That's my personal opinion. I've gone straight all my life. I didn't murder anyone. I don't say I was a religious man. I don't say I had no faults. Far from it. But I've done my best all my life, see? Done my best by everything. That's the sort of chap I was. Never asked for anything that wasn't my right. If I wanted a drink, I paid for it. If I took my wages, I'd done my job, see? That's the sort of chap I was, and I don't care who knows it. I've always done my best, and never done anything wrong. What I don't see is why I should be put below a bloody murderer like you. I'm only telling you the sort of chap I am. I only want my rights. I'm not asking for anyone's bleeding charity. The man in heaven replied, Then ask. Ask for the bleeding charity, and it will be given to you. Everything is here for the asking, and nothing can be bought or earned. The man in heaven urged him to ask for God's mercy, but he refused. Tell them I'm not coming, see? I'd rather be damned than go along with you. I came here to get my rights, see? Not to go sniveling along on charity. And so he turns away. Now, of course, C.S. Lewis is very upfront about the fact that this is fiction. But it illustrates a real truth, doesn't it? It is a humbling thing to admit our need for help. 
It's a humbling thing to admit our need for a saviour. If we're honest, we can be far more tempted, like Caesar Augustus, to want to elevate ourselves and rely on our own strength, rather than to humble ourselves and embrace our weakness. But in Jesus, God promises that if we're willing to admit our need, to admit that we can't depend on ourselves, and instead entrust ourselves to Jesus, then God is all too willing to welcome us in and save us. We live in a world that is longing for peace. But only those who humble themselves and look to Jesus will find it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the God of peace. We praise you as a God who fulfills your promises sending us a saviour in Jesus, in fulfilment of your plan announced centuries earlier. Father, we confess that the dividing line between good and evil passes between our hearts, that we too contribute to conflict in our lives and in our world. And so we thank you that you have sent Jesus to solve our problem at the source, to give us peace with you now through Jesus, through trusting in him, and also to pave the way so that when Jesus returns, we will see perfect peace on every level. Father, as we long for that day, when Jesus returns and all things are made right, help us to keep trusting in Jesus. Help us to delight in him, to see and deeply feel that the news about his birth is is profoundly good news. We pray that it would grip us and shape us so that we couldn't help but praise and glorify you. We couldn't help but delight in you, want to obey you, to want to spread the word, to want to live our lives glorifying and praising you for all that you've done. Please, Father, do that work in us by your spirit so that our lives might be shaped by the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.